Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode, Keys to the SLP's Role on a Head and Neck Cancer Team. This is part one of a two-part series. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Heather Thompson is an SLP at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. She receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. And our learning objectives for today are... One, to identify updates in head and neck cancer. Two, explain the evidence of increased effectiveness of treating head and neck cancer as a multidisciplinary team. Three, identify the SLP role in the head and neck cancer treatment and education throughout the continuum of care to facilitate quicker reintegration into the community. And now we welcome our guest today, Heather Thompson, CCC SLP is a speech-language pathologist at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center specializing in the evaluation and treatment of oropharyngeal swallowing disorders, as well as head and neck cancer, speech and swallowing restoration. She is proficient in the management of voice prosthesis following the tracheoesophageal voice restoration after laryngectomy. Most recently, she presented at the Society of Physicians Assistants in Ear, Nose, and Throat in Los Angeles, California. She co-authored a book chapter on the role of SLP in head and neck cancer management. Currently, she's involved in research in the lung transplant population and participates in community outreach promoting speech-language pathology. And we are so happy to have you here on Keys for SLPs to talk about the SLP's role on the head and neck cancer team. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Beth, for that kind introduction. <laughs> it makes me sound more important than I think I am. <laughs> well, I think you are very important. And we are so happy to have you here tonight with us. And thank you to all of our participants for joining us tonight. We're really, or this afternoon for some of you, we're really excited to have you all here. I'm very happy to, to be here. The head and neck cancer population and patient population is a population that I am very passionate about and I I love working with. It doesn't really feel like a job to me. I really love this population. It's never the same. I think one of my mentors from way back told me, if you've seen one head and neck cancer patient, you've seen one head and neck cancer patient. 
because no two patients are ever the same. So my goal is just to kind of give tips and tricks for just managing and getting through. Well, thank you. And that's so interesting because that you say that because you never know how someone's head and neck cancer or any cancer is going to go. You can have what looks like the same diagnosis and looks like the same course and one goes in one direction and the other goes in the other direction. And for you to be in a role that you support people, no matter what direction is truly a gift. And how wonderful for you that you don't even feel like your work is work. Right. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, let's, let's dig in. How did you get involved in head and neck cancer? Well, tell us a little bit about your journey as an SLP and how you landed in this specialized area. So my journey as an SLP is probably this roundabout circle. That's not the same. I feel like I got out and I felt like I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was all over the map. I actually started doing pediatrics and adults. And I certainly started going down doing more of the neuropath, the stroke and that path. And then I did early intervention and it was kind of okay. But then I, I was really drawn to that adult path. And so then I worked in long-term acute and I worked in skilled nursing and then worked in acute care. And then at the hospital I'm at now, I just got an experience here and there and on the acute side with the head and neck cancer population. And now I was working in out in the outpatient setting, actually with neuro and with voice. And we had an, a surgeon who wanted to start a head and neck cancer program. And they said, who's interested? And I was like, why not? And so I was like, I have some experience from my graduate school days. I've done a little bit on acute. I'm willing to learn. And so I was like, why not? I'll jump in. And that was about 10 years ago. And so I just decided to jump in and learn. And that's where I am now. It was kind of a sink or swim. Oh, that's great. Wow. What percent of your caseload is head and neck cancer? Right now, my caseload is probably 80% head and neck cancer and that cancer population right now. It probably started initially being 10 years ago, being 10% to now where it's 80% of my caseload at this time. And are you working in both outpatient and inpatient with head and neck cancer patients? I'm primarily outpatient. I have an acute colleague who I'll only cover if she's out on vacation and she'll come over to outpatient and cover if I'm out, but I'm primarily in the outpatient setting. Okay. Well, great. I can cross over, but. Okay. So one of the things we really thought it was important to cover is the updates in head and neck cancer over the past 20 years. You've been, you've really been in this area for about 10 years and you've seen a lot of change, but if you look back 20 years, there has been significant changes in this area. Well, and I think that's kind of the very interesting part of it all too. Even in the the 10 years where I started going back 20 years, when I first was in graduate school, head and neck cancer, the patients that the speech language pathologist was seeing 
for head and neck cancer, for laryngectomy were due to smoking, tobacco related more so. And we can thank the government for some things, and that would be smoking, smoking awareness. And there was a decline in smoking. And since the decline was smoking and tobacco, there was a decline in head and neck cancer or oral pharyngeal cancers related to smoking. But there's now HPV. So now there is an increase. There's actually a head and neck cancer is on the rise because of HPV. So smoking is related to what's called HPV negative. Now we have HPV positive. And so it's kind of swung the other way. So smoking's gone down. So you don't have those HPV negatives. Now we have HPV positive and that's what's actually on the rise. So just kind of some numbers that I looked up for this podcast is that the CDC reported in 2018. So this is kind of a, this most current that I could find that nearly 42 million people are currently infected with HPV in the United States and about 13 million people, including teens, become infected with HPV each year. And about 10% of men and 3.6% of women have oral HPV and oral HPV and EB infection is more common with the older age. And then the other statistic that I thought was very interesting is that according to the data that the CDC had from 2015 to 2019, is that there was an estimated 47,000 new cases of HPV-associated cancers occurring in the United States each year including 26,000 among men, women and 21,000 among men. And then women had the higher cases of cervical, but men had the higher cases of the oral pharyngeal cancers. So kind of looping back to your question of what you were saying, when 20 years ago, when I was in school, we weren't talking about oral pharyngeal cancers related to HPV, we were talking about oral cancers related to smoking. Now we're talking about oral cancers related to HPV, which are on the rise right now. The good thing is, is if they're HPV positive, there is like a a 90% cure rate. So the good, bad, bad part of it is if you are HPV positive, there is that 90% cure in the oral pharyngeal cancer. So it is more curable. It is more curable, but detection is key. Early detection is key. Early, yeah. Did you come across in your research for this, have you come across any information about how the vac- the HPV vaccine in the, the younger generation, let's say, how long has that been around now? Maybe 15 years? Yeah. 15 to 30 year olds? Like is it is are the numbers projected to go down because of the vaccine? Well, and that's what kind of the hope is. The hope is, and I think they're the last when I was actually at that physician's assistant conference, they're starting to collect data on that. And they are starting to see some of those numbers flip. 
because what, you know, I had said earlier is it's, it infects the older generation. So you have to wait. It's only been out 20 years. Those people have to be 20 years, you know, now would be the time where you would look to start to see that decline. But there is starting to get that research to show that the more people who are getting the vaccine, there should be that decline with seeing that go down. However, there's now also this increase with the vaping. I was thinking of the vaping and oh, it makes me so sad. So now we don't know where that's going to kind of go with the, if that will impact those oral pharyngeal cancers. So it's kind of this passing wave here. Right, right. Oh, I sure do hope that vaping is a trend that will decrease because it's it, it has been alarming to see the, the vaping in the past five to 10 years and, and the effects that that will have down the road. We don't know. And I do guest lecture. I have best lectured at USC and Cal State LA. And, you know, and I give the lecture every year. And I'm like, when I was in school, you may or may not see a head and neck cancer patient if you were working outpatient in an adult clinic. Now you will see a head and neck cancer patient. I mean, the numbers are like for HPV is like one in three. It's at epidemic levels. And so you're more than likely you will you will see someone who has it. I mean, that's how much it's changed. But there is the hope with the vaccine that maybe in 20 years, you you won't see. And that's what I always say, or the doctors will also say is there is also the hope that this is the one, the one thing that we have to fight cancer. (laughs) Yes. All right. Anything else you want to add as far as the update goes? No, I mean, I think that's just kind of everything as of now. It's just kind of, I think the other thing to know now too, is that talking about the vaccine, the CDC recommends it for ages nine to 12, you know, for the vaccination to be between nine to 12. And it's not necessarily recommended for anyone older than 26. However, It is recommended for adults ages 27 to 45. You may decide with a conversation with your doctor, you can have the vaccine. So they increase the age to, you may have benefit in getting that vaccine. So it used to be a hard stop at 26. And now they've said they've extended the age to 45 for that. So that is something new that has changed. So adults 27 to 45, you can discuss, consider, discuss getting that HPV vaccine with the doctor. So that's that's something new. That's good to know. Do you know why the vaccine had a limit? It's because they don't know the effectiveness. So it could be, the goal is for nine to 12, they want kids to get it before their first kiss and their first sexual encounter because the it lies dormant. So after 26, it reduces the effectiveness of the vaccine. However, there is, with a discussion with your doctor, they may feel as though each person, if you, depending upon sexual partners and different factors, you could have benefit from the the vaccine. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing. All right. Well, let's talk about that multidisciplinary team and how a multidisciplinary team leads to better patient outcomes. 
So it's actually really interesting. I am part of a multidisciplinary team and I couldn't imagine not being part of a multidisciplinary team because I feel like having a group, you know, everything is always easier with a team. You carry it together. There's actually a research study that came out by Heather Starmer out of Stanford University in 2011 that actually looked at this. And she found that patients evaluated in a multidisciplinary clinic are more likely to comply with the speech language pathology, the SLP recommendations. So right there, that gives you justification for your multidisciplinary team. And I feel like you just kind of work as a support system together. I know for myself in general, we just kind of, we kind of all support each other. And it's so overwhelming when you get a patient gets the diagnosis, all they hear is cancer. And sometimes to be able to go to you and have, okay, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And just kind of rehashing things and going through things over and over. And just, I I feel like not only, even though there's not research on this, compliance with the speech therapy recommendations but compliance with overall getting through the program, you know, complying. Yes, you need to get through this. Yes, you're going to get through this, you know, but then also too, there's also research, you know, that says, you know, you eat, you drink, you swallow, you exercise during radiation treatment, you have better outcomes long-term. So if they're hearing it from you, they're hearing it from the dietitian. They're hearing it from a social worker. They're hearing it from the pain management, the oncologist. They're hearing it from everybody. They're more than likely going to buy into it. So I know for me personally, if they've seen the, the ENT, they've seen the radiation oncologist, they've seen the oncologist, and they're coming for me for the evaluation, they already know why they're there. And I also had just patients will say at the the very end of treatment, they will say, you know, I was so overwhelmed in the beginning when I had to go to all of these people, but now I couldn't imagine getting through without having my person helping me through with all of this. And, you know, even too, just last week, I had somebody email me and say, you know, a friend of mine is going to another facility across the country he doesn't have the dietitian. Could you connect me with the dietitian? I forgot her name. He needs help with knowing this. You know, I think for patients to know this is your point person for this. Or this is your point person for that. It, it, you know, they don't like it in the beginning, but knowing that they have this team supporting them, I think patients really do benefit from it at the end. They like having the team. Yeah, it's encouraging and they know that everyone is looking out for them too. Yeah. All right. Well, who are all those people on that team? Well, our team is rather large um, at ours. Um, and I think it varies from facility. So our team, we have the the otolaryngologist or the surgeon. There are also maybe a laryngologist on board or the ENT the ear, nose, and throat. We have the radiation 
oncologist, you know, the, the doctor doing the radiation, you have your oncologist who would be doing your chemo or your immunotherapy, those things, your supportive, we have supportive medicine and pain management. They also serve as the role of the palliative, palliative doctor. So they kind of set the goals of care as well for our patients, especially kind of the elderly ones, but they also are, they're guiding the pain management too, because believe it or not, some people don't want to take pain medicine and how much pain medicine, because, you know, with the opioid crisis, they're worried and they have concerns with this. Um, also with alternatives such as CBD and marijuana and guiding that. So we're lucky to have that aspect. Um, we also have dietitians on board. We have a physical therapist and some facilities have occupational therapists. They help with the lymphedema and the trismus as well. And speech therapy, which would be me social workers. Um, and then also we have a dentist on board as well to also help as needed. And he kind of floats in and out, but we we're very fortunate to have a dentist as, as needed. Um, and that's kind of a novelty. A lot of places don't have that. So tell us a little bit about the role of the dentist. The dentist actually, prior to treatment, he does the assessment to assess for any cavities, any, um, if there's any, you know, anything that needs to be cleared, any root canals, anything gets that all clean. But then during treatment also is assessing for xerostomia, saliva, any of those kind of things that could be impacting um, the mouth or the oral, you know, taste, saliva. Uh, the dentist that we're actually working with now is actually doing research on light therapy to actually help with saliva stimulation and taste. So, you know, just all of those different things, but then also fluoride treatments, trays, but they're also there as well to help keep an eye on the trismus. And they also are there to kind of guide whether or not um, and to help with referrals for obturators, palatals, you know, lifts, things like that, too. Sometimes it's good to have a dentist because they can get you in. They know, they may know a quicker um, prosthodontist or a route to that if you need if you need that as well. Right, right. Because it often takes a while to make those appointments. And so you don't you don't have a while when you're in head and neck cancer. So you've been on the team for 10 years. How long has the dentist been part of the team? The dentist has been a part of the team, I would say that whole time. But he's there, like he's there one to two times a week. Okay. So a lot of times we utilize him more so for the very We've utilized him more throughout the years. So, it, you know, it, we used to be like once a month and it's it's become more and more, especially now it's kind of like as his research has kind of picked up with the saliva and the taste and all of those things. But um, it's really a 
benefits if they can get into this dentist because he can measure the saliva, the you know, do the assessment on that, do the assessment of the, you know, look at the teeth and decide, okay, we need to pull and also looking and set realistic expectations for implants, dentures, all of those things, because people want it quickly. But sometimes in the process of getting ready and setting the trays and fluoride treatments and the oral care prior, but sometimes in the process of trying to get the dentist set up and starting radiation, it's just easier to get them started with their own dentist and then switching over to the dentist that's part of our team later in the treatment. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for enlightening us on dentistry with Head Nick. Dentistry. Yeah. I have another question. You said supportive medicine and pain management. Are those two different individuals? Well, no, our supportive medicine doctor takes the role of the pain management. So in some facilities, it's called the pain management doctor. In our facilities, it's supportive medicine. And so our supportive medicine doctor kind of fills the role of palliative and pain management. So they will discuss kind of the goals of the patient. Um, Do you want a feeding tube? Do you how, you know, do you want a curative approach? Do you, you know, this, but then they are also throughout treatment managing pain because pain can also be the biggest obstacle for a lot of patients with getting through treatment. So if pain is managed, then they typically can get through treatment a lot better, but also you want pain managed because you want, for me as the speech therapist, I want patients to stay oral as much and as often as possible. And what's going to stop it is pain. Exactly. And if they can manage their pain, they can stay oral longer. And of course the dietitian's like, well, I want them to stay oral longer because I I don't want them to be on the feeding tube long, or I don't want them to be on the feeding tube at all. You know, exactly. There really is some synergy when you have a whole team working together that really does lead to better patient outcomes. All right. So let's see. So you have a multidisciplinary approach all the way from diagnosis through treatment and then follow-up. So normally the person comes to your team through which, which person on that team, the, the ENT? So typically they come through, they'll, they'll usually meet with the ear, nose, and throat doctor first. And I feel like for ear, nose, and throat, when they present to ear, nose, and throat, it were, it's always the same. It's either I've had a cold or a hoarse and raspy throat that hasn't gone away, or it's, I've had, a, for men, it's, Oh, I had a, I was shaving and I noticed a lump and it, I, I noticed a lump and it didn't get, it didn't go away. And so they'll present to ENT and then the ear, nose and throat doctor then typically presents them to the tumor board. And then that's when the tumor board is an interdisciplinary team. And that's when they meet with everybody all together. 
And I, I feel as though if you're new or you're starting at a neck cancer program, advocate as a speech language pathologist, advocate to go to and be a part of these tumor boards, because I feel like doctors are very good at thinking about the cure and beating the cancer, but sometimes they forget the function in the long term. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, and sometimes your input can change the course. You know, they may be going down the path of surgery. And especially for us in Los Angeles, we have a lot of actors, we have a lot of voiceover, we have a lot of singers, and they'll be going down this path of surgery, surgery, surgery. And then my colleague and I will be like, hold up, if you do this surgery, what is this going to look like? You know, is that going to change the way that, you know, you do the surgery, you cut a piece of their tongue, they're not going to be able to say this sound anymore. That's going to impact their job, their livelihood, you know, okay, then that switch, we're going to radiation for a curative approach. Or it switches the other way, you know, like you have that, that impact you, you know, cause you, I feel like we have that impact on that function part um, because eating, drinking and talking are very valuable for quality of life across the board for everybody. Absolutely. But as you said, for some, it really is their livelihood. Yeah. I mean, and not just that, you know, I'm just talking about it in the ways of like, for, you know, actors and singers, but what about chefs? But then we also just don't think about it in the fact of just people in their day to day, their one goal may be to be able to go out to eat with family and friends, then eating is their main goal. So it's, it switches and you're there to kind of advocate for those goals, you know, for, for your patients. And how often does the tumor board meet? Our tumor board meets twice a month. So we meet twice a month and, and the, and what they'll do is they'll bring up a case and they just kind of go over, you know, they present it, they show the tumor, they talk about the pros and cons, the pathology, the imaging, um, go back and forth and they'll go over all of that. And then once a month we have a disease management team And then that is run by the radiation oncologist. And then we go through all the patients who are on active treatment and how they are actually doing in the treatment process. You know, are they losing weight? How are they doing through radiation and chemo? Or how are they doing after surgery? Do they get the NG tube out? Do they need a G tube? Are they eating and drinking? Are they being compliant? Are they showing up? Are they taking their pain medicine? So also, are they seeing speech? (laughs) Are they showing up to appointments? And when you meet, you meet in person. I know a lot of things have changed in the last couple of years. We are, we used to meet in person. Now we're Zoom and we're going to hybrid. And you go through all the patients. And how long does that meeting last usually just... It's supposed to last an hour, but I feel like we always go over 
We um, it lasts an hour if everybody agrees. <laughs> but you have a lot of smart people in one room or on one Zoom, and not everyone's going to agree, right? Yeah, if everybody agrees, or if if it, but I feel like these cases are never straightforward either because there's a lot of things to think about, and the cases that are brought forward sometimes they're younger. And you really want the best cure because they have young kids and young families and those things. But then also, too, sometimes they're older. So you want, like, do we go for everything or do we go for quality of life? Like how much time, you know, you 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 have to weigh out a lot of things. So you, you really have to strike a balance. So you see the team sees patients from diagnosis through treatment and through follow-up. How long is the treatment on average, would you say? And is head and neck cancer a slow growing cancer? Like does the treatment start very shortly after diagnosis or is there, is it okay to have some time to get that treatment plan together? So I feel like it, they move. I feel like with any cancer, you're going to move quick. It's a hurry up and wait kind of thing. They are going to move quickly with it. Um, if it's a surgical approach, they're going to do surgery and then they're probably going to wait till you heal from surgery, which is going to be a, like a four to six, six, four to six week period. And then they're going to want to start radiation and radiation and or radiation and chemo is usually a six to seven week period. And then you have your recovery, which is usually a, it's, it's usually the quickest recovery. They usually feel better two weeks after, you know, they start to feel better two weeks after, but it's a year recovery process. Um, I like the way our radiation oncologist explains it. He goes, it's kind of like a mirror. You're seven weeks in and you're seven weeks out. So the first week after radiation is like the last week of radiation. The second week after radiation is like your next week, your next to the last week of radiation. And it just kind of folds itself out. But you, it takes a year to completely kind of recover from it your body to kind of recover from the whole process. You know, you slowly get your taste back. You're slowly, it's a, but they make that most, the most recovery in that first three months. And so for me personally, if it is a patient that I'm seeing, if it's a chemo radiation patient, I see them prior to chemo and radiation. You see them chemo radiation, you get the baseline. And they tell you that they have no problems. I don't know why I'm seeing you. And then you tell them it's going to get worse and you prepare them every week. And then about that, you're doing exercises for the head, the shoulder, the jaw, the the larynx, anywhere that the radiation is going to hit. You're trying to prevent that lymphedema, that trismus, the, you know, the pharyngeal strengthening, keeping them eating and drinking. And then about that fourth or fifth week, when they're ready to be done, you're like, they're like, oh, you were right. And you're like, but I didn't want to be right. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry that I was right. I actually knew I was right, but I didn't want to be for your sake. Exactly. And then I continue to follow them 
And then I always say, you know, my goal is you have to be where you were when you finished. So as long as you're eating, you know, if you started eating solid food, I need to watch you be able to eat solid food. And then after that, I follow them every three months for the first year to make sure that they're eating and drinking and swallowing um, because the most changes happen within that first year. If I'm able to get a baseline video swallow study, I try to do that. Um, But sometimes it just moves so quickly that I'm not able to do that. And, you know, currently we have a research study going on and those patients are, they do have a baseline prior to and um, prior to radiation and chemo and post chemo radiation. Can you tell us a little bit about that study? So, yeah, that's kind of, um, hopefully we'll see some good things. Well, what um, it is, it's for surgical patients. So I think if it's a T1, T2, HPV positive, if, um, and I think if you have one or two lymph nodes involved uh, or no lymph nodes involved, it's then you get chemo and radiation, but you only get three weeks or five weeks. And the goal and what it, what the hope is, is that it might change the radiation course from seven weeks to three weeks or five weeks and hopefully reduce the side effects and have better outcomes with speech or swallowing. So stay tuned. (laughs) That's what the hope is. Two things, other things that you've mentioned are the the lymphedema and then the trismus. Can you tell us a little bit about those two? So the trismus would be the, the jaw range of motion. And so typically where HPV cancers like to live are in the tonsil, in the tonsil bed. So the radiation typically, the field typically hits that TMJ joint. And so throughout radiation treatment, you have to keep that moving and have them stretching and moving that jaw because what happens is radiation is making it tighter. They're stretching it completely throughout the treatment. So it's getting tighter. They're stretching it. Also too, if they have a surgical resection through the TORS, which is the transoral robotic surgery, which is where the robot goes in and just stretches everything open and moves everything out of place, it could displace that joint. And so then after surgery, it gets tight again. So then you want, you have to work that joint. And with trismus and radiation, it's not something that just gets tight overnight. It just goes down a millimeter and a millimeter and a millimeter and a millimeter. So if they're not doing these exercises, then what they'll notice is it's just tight and it could come become painful. So it's just keeping everything moving throughout to avoid that scar tissue from developing and avoiding that pain. Okay. Actual exercises as well as eating, chewing, and then of course speaking, use your jaw for all three. Yeah. And there's devices you can use, you know, there's Therabyte, there's the Aura Stretch, there's good old tongue depressors. 
fingers, you know, it's, it's whatever, you know, I, I think I probably use a little bit of all depending upon, you know, the patient and also to what the, the patient can, can afford, you know, and that's awesome. And, you know, what the deficit is. Okay. Well, thank you. And then the lymphedema. Lymphedema is the swelling of the lymph glands and that's from the radiation treatment. So you want to keep everything moving in the head and the neck because the radiation will make those lymph glands swollen. So you want to keep everything moving um, and keep everything going. So So the muscles in the neck don't get tight and fibrotic. I myself personally am not a certified lymphedema therapist. So I just kind of do the stretches to get them through and keep everything kind of at a maintenance point. And then once they finish with treatment and everything kind of settles down as far as with the radiation burn, what I do then is then refer to our physical therapist who is a certified lymphedema therapist and he will then work and do massage as soon as possible after treatment as soon as he can touch the neck to kind of work that down to to stop that that fluid from hardening and getting getting thick and hard within the neck well that is interesting and who is qualified to earn a lymphedema certification I mean, speech therapist and speech therapy, OT, PT, um, and I think speech therapy, I think um, Walt Fritz, um, Brad Smith, um, they all do courses for head and neck lymphedema, you know, certifications for the head and neck, and then physical therapists as well as occupational therapists. Okay, great. All right. So let's talk about specifically the SLP's role. We've we've touched upon it in conversation, but SLPs play that crucial role in educating, counseling, and treatment of speech and swallowing throughout the continuum of care. So let's dive into each stage. We've got the preoperative evaluation, post-surgery, post-radiation, post-reconstruction. You know, and your role in preoperative care is you want to get your baseline. Well, first of all, you want to get the baseline, but you also want to find out what their goals are. And you want to set that realistic expectation of like, this is what it's going to be like. This is, you know, what's going to, this, this is what's going to happen. And this is what to prepare for. And, you know, education regarding the side effects that, that are going to happen, whether if it's surgery you want to prepare them like, hey, look, you know, your speech is going to change or you're not going to be able to talk after surgery. I can't change that. You're going to be on voice rest. But here's a text to speech app or here's a writing tablet or here's this. You're going to need a way to communicate. But four to six weeks after surgery, this is your speech should start to sound like this. These are the sounds that are going to be difficult, you know, so setting those realistic expectations, because I feel like the same thing with chemo and radiation, you know, this at four weeks, your mouth will be dry, you'll notice this, you'll notice this. I feel like if people know what to expect, and know the pathway, they're less anxious. They have an idea. It's when they go into surgery, nobody told me that this was going to happen. Nobody, you know, 
So setting those realistic expectations, I think are, are very important. You want to get the baseline swallowing, baseline voice, and then starting on speech and swallowing exercises as soon as you can. I mean, there's a lot of research out, out there about prophylactic speech and swallowing exercises and how that helps those long-term, you know, long-term swallowing. Also, you want to make any necessary referrals then, you know, because as soon as things start, it's too late because then it's too overwhelming. So if they need the dietitian, get the dietitian, get the social worker on board, any other referrals, just go on and, and get those things going as soon as possible. On your team, they don't automatically see everyone on the team. Um, they they typically do, but sometimes there's just things that like the doctor may look at somebody and think that they're, oh, well, this person looks overweight, so they probably don't need the dietitian, but they ha- they're lo- dropping 10 pounds a week. Yeah, you need to see the dietitian, but the doctor hasn't ask that question because the weight looks fine on the scale, you know, or, you know, they're not telling the doctor they're on the modified diet or sometimes things may come up in your session that aren't alerting the doctors right away for a social worker referral or different referrals. Like sometimes they may wait on them, you know, and then they're like, no, let's get these things going now. So sometimes, you know, if there's some referrals, you know, definitely for radiation, but sometimes if it's pre-op, they may need them earlier. And then for me, because I don't see them on the acute setting, I will say, okay, my colleague's name is, and you're going to see her on acute. This is the person you ask for. I'm going to talk to her and then they have that and to have that handoff. So they know exactly what to expect and what that next step will be. And they kind of know what the process will be going forward. That's great. And also important to decrease any anxiety around the the whole surgery and, and any little thing that you can do. It can be very helpful. Yeah, definitely. And it, and I will say too, I'm very fortunate that I have an acute colleague that I kind of can tag team with because literally as soon as I do that, I call her and I'm like, okay, this is what's happening. Then when she sees them on acute, she can do while they're in the hospital. If she can, she'll see them at bedside, but she can also get done any of those objective studies while they're there. They don't have to come back into it. So they can do the video swallow studies. They can do the fiber optic exams. They can do all of those things. And then she can loop them. She can tell me, hey, they're coming back to you. And then I know. So when they, they're coming post-op, I can schedule their post-op visit the same day. So it, it makes a nice a nice little loop. Yeah, it sounds like you really focus on the continuum of care. Well, and I feel like patients like it too. They like to know that people are talking. Sometimes they don't like to know that people are talking. Who said that? (laughs) But for the most part, they like to know that they have that team working in their favor. Exactly. All right. So post-surgery then, they're in the hospital and they're not speaking. 
Well, they'll speak. They're usually communicating. It's just not at their baseline. Okay. So the first day, if they have a resection, the doctor will want them to be on vocal rest, minimal communication. So that's when they'll use like a, they'll use a text to speech app or they'll use a writing tablet to communicate with the nursing staff because they don't want things a flat to be, if they did a reconstruction, they don't want it moving around. They want things to stay still for a little bit. Okay. So then at what point post-surgery did they usually come back to you? If everything goes well, knock on wood, sometimes it's like a one to two weeks. And they're usually talking pretty well, doing pretty well, usually on a diet, but they have the swelling. So everything isn't perfect. And I think it's, it's setting that expectation. So your tongue was cut. So you had this oral surgery, you got to let things heal. But I think the bigger ones are the ones where the soft palate's involved and they have the nasal regurgitation. They're like, it's my, you're like, so that will get better because I feel like people can get past their speech sounding awkward for a while. It's the liquid going through their nose that, which, which I understand that. Yeah. And it hurts too. Yeah. Well, it's just awkward. They're embarrassing. Okay. So if they've had their surgery before radiation, they come back after surgery to you and then they start radiation and usually see you throughout the radiation. Yeah. I see them. My goal is to see them every week. I'll see them every week, either before or after their radiation. I pick the same day, same time. And I see them a lot of times I tag team with the dietitian because a lot of what we say overlaps. So we'll, we'll see them together. Cause I'm like, cause I think it gets confusing. I'm like, I tell you what to eat. She tells you, <laughs> you know, I tell you the texture. She tells you what to eat. And we kind of tag team that together. It also kind of works when we go on vacation because I kind of have an idea of like, okay, remember she said five shakes and she kind of knows like, remember the exercises, look, you know, I can't do what the dietitian does, but I kind of have the, you know, I, I know the language enough where they can't skirt around me. So it kind of works really well that I kind of, I kind of like it because I do feel like speech and dietitian sometimes they get us confused. Right. Well, as you said, it's similar information, but slightly different. So yeah. And then if I make a diet change, if I say they need to thicken liquids, she's right there to tell them, okay, this is what you need to do. This is how you're going to get your hydrate hydration. Now, if you don't want to drink water and then also too, with cultural things, she can say, these are the foods you need to have. Because I'm like applesauce. And they're like, yeah, we don't eat that. <laughs> okay. And then post-reconstruction. And and that I think that's kind of post-reconstruction kind of goes with that kind of the, the post-surgery. You know, it's kind of the, the it, it's all kind of hand in hand. Because this uh, during the surgery, they're going to do a reconstruction. Okay. It's not, the reconstruction is not going to come after the radiation. That reconstruction is part of that. They're taking out what they need to take out and doing the reconstruction at the same time. Yeah, they do it all. 
And the other thing we're fortunate with too, is you want a good facial plastic reconstruction person. And that's the other thing with the tumor board to say like, Hey, look, please don't make this flat too big. Please don't make it, you know, how is this flat going to be able to don't make this sit down too long. That's going to impact the speech. If you're going to do that, we need to go for an obturator because it's, it, it will impact your functional outcomes. And can you explain what an obturator is? So an obturator is, uh, you know, it's, it's like a, a retainer. It just kind of sits up in your mouth. And so if somebody has a, a hole or a fistula in the hard palate, they can make this retainer that, that would cover that hole so that food or liquid won't go up into that nasal passage or so that it can sit down lower so that the tongue can have contact if they reconstruct and the tongue isn't able to lift as much or the flap isn't able to lift as much. And that would be the dentist who makes the obturator. Yeah. Or prosthodontist. Or prosthodontist. Okay. All right. One point we we had a note to talk about was post-trans oral resection. I guess my question is for the post-trans trans oral resection, what would, would your question be for like the trans oral resection would be very similar to me. It's kind of surgery is very much surgery, you know, and I feel like when you're doing any head and neck cancer patient that is going through surgery, you have to prepare them for what the change is going to be with their speech, their swallowing and all of those different things. So if they're going to have like a transoral resection, if they're going to have a rat, a flap reconstruction, you have to make sure that they know there are going to be changes to their speech. There are going to be changes to their swallowing. They need to know, okay, you may have a feeding tube. You're going to have an NG tube. What does that look like? What are the diet levels? What is that going to look like? Realistic timelines for that. It's education. I think knowing all of those kind of things too. But then I, I feel like too, you know, also that's, you know, knowing those kind of things and, you know, the trans, you know, for the trans oral resection, that's the tours. Also knowing, hey, like I talked about with the Trismus, you know, that robot's going to go in, that could stretch your jaw. You know, you have to know that, you know, you may wake up and your jaw is going to feel a little tight. This is the reason why. But then I feel like also reassuring, we know these things are going to happen, but this is why you're going to do these exercises. This is why my colleague is going to see you. This is why I'm going to see you afterwards. I think making sure that they know why you have a plan in place. You might have a feeding tube after you have your resection because that's where, you know, that's, you know, it was done right back there where your tonsil was or your base of tongue. But you're going to start with a liquid diet. Then you may come see me and you may be on pureed foods and that's okay because you're healing. Your speech may be different because it's swollen. That's okay. You are healing. You have to be realistic. You know, things may go up your nose because it goes back here. 
that's okay. You know, I think just making sure that you're, you're talking about all these things, making sure that they know they're, you may have trismus, this, your neck may be tight if they have to do a neck dissection to get everything out. But I think also being the cheerleader for the surgeon, but you have to remember the number one goal is for you to be cancer free. We can get all of these things after the surgery, but you've got to get through the surgery. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Get rid of that cancer. All right. Well, we have just, I know we're going to have part two in a little bit. So I know you wanted to share a case study. So we have just a few minutes for you to share one case study. Then we're going to see if we have any questions from our audience, and then we'll take a break and come back for part two. So share a case study. doesn't matter which one. It's up to you. So this person, I find this this case study very interesting because he's doing so well now. Um, he's a 38-year-old male, and he was HPV ne- negative with squamous cell car- carcinoma of the left tongue. He was a T2, N2, which means um, the tumor was a T2. And the N2 means he had two lymph nodes that were involved. So he had the the resection and a reconstruction, and then he had chemo and radiation. And he had a left hemiglossectomy and a left radical neck dissection. And they did a radical forearm pre-flap. So they took his... They made the tongue here, reconstructed, put it here, you know, and then sent him off, you know. So if you think about somebody who they took half of his tongue, reconstructed it, sent it off, sent him off to chemo and radiation for seven weeks. And throughout, you know, they were able to the hypoglossal nerve, lingual nerve, they were all maintained during the surgery because they were able to kind of follow that. He did have the two lymph nodes removed. He was the patient that was the perfect patient. He was seen preoperative. He was seen, you know, during radiation treatment, chemo treatment. He ate, he drank um, throughout treatment, did all of his exercises, did his stretches. And then after radiation, his neck began to swell and he got lymphedema. (laughs) So he also had physical therapy afterwards. He's now seven years out. After he's um, cancer-free, he does public speaking all the time. He's the patient that I show to all of my other patients. And they're like, I want to sound like him. You cannot, I mean, his articulation is perfect, slightless every once in a while if he speeds up or if he's tired. And I feel like he is the perfect patient to show, like, if you continue to eat, if you continue to drink, if you do the dietitian, he didn't need a feeding tube. He was never admitted during the hospital because of dehydration or non-compliance or didn't take his pain management. You know, he did have the lymphedema, but he went to lymphedema therapy and he doesn't have all this fibrotic neck, you know, he, you know, you would have to look and see his tongue. And when he talks, 
you know, I show the students every year a clip of him talking. They read this case study and they're like, wow. And I feel like for me, it's just the perfect example of if you get the patient that buys in, they they can be the success story. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing. And it doesn't look like we have any questions at this time. So I think we can take our our break and come back for part two. And if you're coming back for part two, we're going to take about a 10 minute break. And part two is keys to rehabilitation after laryngectomy. So we talked a lot about head and neck cancer, but we really didn't speak specifically to laryngectomy in part one. So we're going to dive into that in part two. All right. Do you have anything else you'd like to add at this time, Heather? No, I just feel like, well, I said no. And then I said, let me take, <laughs> I just want to thank everybody for joining too. And I, I probably rambled on a lot. I do feel like head and neck cancer is so deep and so broad. And just to go back to kind of like what my mentor said, if you're new at seeing head and neck cancer, or you've done it forever, if you've seen one, you've seen one. And it's just really having your toolbox of knowing, okay, I need my baseline. These are my toolbox. And, you know, you know, reaching out to people who see it all the time and having those support systems in place in those groups, um, because it's a fun population and it is a population you'll never get bored with. And it's always changing and the therapy and the therapeutic, you know, immunotherapy wasn't on the table five years ago. Now it's a treatment option, brachytherapy, you know, it's constantly changing. So well, that is exciting and hopeful. If someone wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way to get a hold of you? I feel like email is probably the best for me. Um, However, I do my phone number, I think is is available. It's the 310-423-9295. But my email, which is heather.thompson at cshs.org is probably the best way to get in contact with me. Um, Because during the day, it's a little chaotic. But when I sit down, I'm always able to return an email. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.